Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, February 4th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the State Board of Health meets to begin outlining the state's new medical marijuana program. Then, 2020 was a record year for organ transplants in Mississippi. We examine how Mora was successful in a year complicated by the coronavirus pandemic. Plus, in our book club, a military veteran and professor emeritus at West Point challenges the myths of the Confederate legacy in Robert E. Lee and me. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The Mississippi Board of Health is discussing how the state will begin the new medical marijuana program adopted last year. Over 70 percent of voters approved Initiative 65, a constitutional amendment legalizing the substance and assigning administrative duties of the program to the Department of Health. Yesterday, State Health Officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs met with members of the board to discuss the program. Dobbs says the department is committed to the task now prescribed in the state constitution. One of the most important things I think to share um, is our general commitment to making sure that we live up to our constitutional duties. And we do intend as, um, as, as the State Department of Health to fulfill those duties and meet the timeframes that are outlined in the state constitution. And what we plan to do is to review um, uh, two big items. The primary thing that we want to discuss is uh, the program objectives, um, making sure that we understand what does this medical marijuana program want to achieve? Um, what are the, um, the goals, the general goals of the program? Uh, they'll give us sort of uh, philosophical parameters for making sure that we achieve those targets. And then the second thing is we will review uh, the general timeline for execution of the program elements so that we can meet those constitutional deadlines. During the meeting, Dobbs presented an overview of the program's guiding principles. He says these principles will protect the integrity of the medical marijuana program. First off, we want to enable distribution of medical cannabis consistent with the state constitution. We want to make sure that we protect vulnerable populations, um, such as youth um, and possibly you know, pregnant women. Um, we want to uh, think about community impact mitigation because we know there may be potential untoward effects on local communities. Certainly want to make sure we look at compliance to prevent uh, fraud and, and unintended effects of program operations. We want to communicate with public our program development process to make sure that everyone understands the transparency with which we would like to uh, bring this forward, prevent drug diversion, uh, prevent involvement of criminal, criminal elements. Um, we want to minimize equity issues as much as possible 
both on the, uh, the, the business element, but also on the patient care and access um, fronts, prevent substance abuse um, and address adverse consequences of substances with abuse potential. Um, we wanna look at fiscal sustainability so that the, prog- the program is self-sustaining and of course, to ensure product safety. Some board members like Dr. Luke Lampton of Magnolia emphasize the need to create a program safe from corporate influence. Lampton says the state should reap the economic benefits of the program. I do have, you know, and, you, and I've said this before, but I do think uh, I'd like staff and I'm not sure it needs to be listed as an objective, but the citizens of the state that I have talked with uh, would like uh, to limit as much as possible corporate involvement from out of state and try to utilize with the industry, uh, Mississippi uh, businesses and citizens. Um, The cannabis industry is complex and I'm not encouraging us to encourage every mom and pop store to be there. But I do think that as we go through the process from an economic uh, standpoint, and as we develop everything from uh, the licensure aspect, uh, there may be some ways that we can promote the economy of Mississippi, which needs to be promoted, uh, especially at a Mississippi business and a Mississippi citizen level. And I'm just throwing that out there as something that I do think should be uh, an objective in the thought processes as we set this up. Dr. Dobbs also presented a general timeline of the program. Regulations must be adopted by July 1st with cards and licenses available by August 15th. He does foresee two bottlenecks in the process that the Department of Health is currently navigating. We identified two bottlenecks that other states have seen pretty much universally. And part of it's an IT system. And we know sometimes IT systems can be a challenge, uh, you know, even for a non-marijuana sort of situation. So we, we did want to look at seed to sale and licensing software uh, and getting that implemented. And then the other, other one that does tend to be a bottleneck in some of our neighboring states is lab testing and basically product testing and safety, making sure that there are labs that are able to do that testing in state. So we've already made uh, pretty, so I just switch back here to seed to sale licensing software. Um, we have been working with ITS and have identified um, a, a software system that is uh, within the master contract that ITS has previously ob- obtained where we can get access to that, those software products. We should have those hopefully on board within a month or so. Team's done a fantastic job making sure the specs are met and that we have, you know, basically, uh, you know, pretty much the, the best of industry uh, software. And then um, testing and lab regs, we're going to work on on that right now. So we anticipate by March, we want to have um, regulations that we can review with the board as far as like um, what is required for someone to set up as a testing lab. While approved users could receive their medical cards on August 15th, product might not be available. Board member Jim Perry says residents must face the misconception that they will be able to get medical marijuana on day one. They may be expecting on August 15th that you can walk into a a, a dispensary or treatment center. Uh, I got my card this morning. I'm here for my, for my marijuana. And as I understand as, as I envision this, I just don't know how that's possible. Um, I mean, it, it takes several months to grow a plant. There's need, need thing, things that need to be tested that it was, it's not like a, a, 
people are going to be able to pre-grow before they get a license um, because they wouldn't be licensed to, to do it. And so if you get the, the, the license at the earliest possible moment of August 15th to, to grow, you're actually going to have to start the growing process and then for it to be tested. And who knows if that first plant's going to be, you know, meet the standards and whatnot. It could be, it could be months after August 15th before there's actually product at a treatment center for a, a, a cardholder to, to purchase. In the meantime, other board members like Ed Langton want to warn Mississippians to be aware of fraud. The public does need to understand that this is all in process and being worked on intensely and that uh, the, the public should be very cautious of any information being dispersed out to the public that states certain uh, uh, regulations or qualifications or uh, there's been some fraud about <clears throat> we can get you uh, in line and get you a card before anybody else and that kind of thing. Uh, that That's extraordinarily bad to happen to uh, our citizens and, and the citizens should not be looking at any of that until they go to the health department <clears throat> for the source documents that will tell them what accurate facts are and not, not rumor and innuendo. Dr. Dobbs says information regarding medical marijuana cards, as well as licenses for cultivators and dispensaries, will be available on the health department's website. He also advises residents to read the constitutional language so they're aware of what the Department of Health is and is not permitted to do under the new amendment. Coming up, 2020 was a record year for organ transplants in Mississippi. We examine how Mora was successful in a year complicated by the coronavirus pandemic. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Despite the complications of the coronavirus pandemic, 2020 was a banner year for organ transplants and tissue donation. Last year, the Mississippi Organ Recovery Agency worked with doctors, hospitals, and donor families to transplant 284 organs through the generosity of 98 donors. It also received a record high in tissue donations. Kevin Stump is the president and CEO of Mora. He shares how the agency was able to achieve record impact. The amazing uh, rate of donation that we saw in 2020 really started about in 2018 when um, we really began to look at ways that we can make sure that more families are given the option, um, more people uh, would choose the opportunity to help save lives through organ and tissue donation. Uh, And so 2020 was the beginning of uh, seeing some of those efforts that began in 2018, um, you know, starting to make an impact. So that, in addition to the amazing support of the healthcare workers across our state and, uh, and of course, the families and individuals, you know, who uh, chose to put their name in the, in the uh, state registry, it, it all started to show 
the outcome of all this work uh, in 2020 when we saw such a, an increase in donation. Did the the registry list increase substantially last year as well? In the state of Mississippi, you've always been able to put the heart on your driver's license or previous to that, you could sign it. But it really didn't have any legal standing as consent until the state legislature passed the third version of the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act in 2008. Uh, that really made the first-person consent uh, a legal authorization. One of the things that happened in 2020 was uh, we've reached a million people putting their uh, names into the Mississippi Donor Registry, signifying that they want to help others uh, with organ tissue and eye donation. So we've reached that million plateau in the registry, um, but we continue to work with the Department of Public Safety um, as well as you know public education to hopefully have more and more people say, you know, this is something I want to do when when my time here on Earth is no longer. Um, I want to help somebody. What is the largest need? What organ or type of tissue or, or eyes <laughs> are most needed? Yeah. The, the biggest need is, is for kidney. We have a, a, you know, especially here in Mississippi, we have a significant end-stage renal disease population, kidney failure, uh, because of hypertension and diabetes that we see in our population. Uh, and across the country, uh, kidney is the, the greatest need. Uh, and then after that, it's, it's fairly equal for uh, liver and heart, uh, and then lung and pancreas also, and then small intestine uh, is also transplanted. Um, so the, the, the list is significant for kidneys and organ. And for tissue, it's, it's all across the board, bone grafts, uh, heart valves for heart valve replacement, uh, corneal tissue for, you know, site restoration, um, you know, veins to restore blood flow to uh, a limb that maybe uh, uh, had decreased flow from some situation. So, Obviously, 2020 was difficult because of those who were ill with COVID-19 and those who passed away. Were any of those who passed away donors and, and were their organs viable? No, the COVID-19 uh, virus uh, has pre prevented anybody um, who has tested positive uh, from being able to donate. And, and that has impacted um, us in 2020 and continues to impact us here in 2021. So if somebody has tested positive for COVID-19 and it's been 21 days since they tested positive uh, and we have a repeat negative test, uh, we can't proceed. But if they've been out 21 days and they now have a negative test, uh, we can proceed with organ donation um, in that situation. For tissue, it's a little more restrictive. Even if there is suspected COVID, um, we can't proceed. What is the process? Do organs donated or tissue or eyes, do they stay in Mississippi? Are the patients all in Mississippi? Uh, historically, the, the allocation system has been predominantly local, state, uh, regional, and then national. Over the last several years, there's been a little bit of a, a change to look at who's the most critical in the area uh, around where the person is donating. So we, we've amended some of the allocation policies to where uh, local patients still get a, a priority, but uh, there's a larger mix of patients to try and get the sickest patient transplanted first. 
Um, so predominantly most of our organs still stay in Mississippi, but there has been a little bit of a shift to, you know, areas around our state as well as those of those donations happening in our neighboring states now, including uh, patients listed at the University of Mississippi Medical Center's transplant program. So we're still evaluating that. That's only changed in about the last um, 18 months. But, um, you know, it, it looks so far that um, it might be working, um, and we continue to monitor that. How many Mississippians are currently on a waiting list and are waiting uh, for something that's going to save their lives? Yeah. I believe currently uh, at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, um, they have around um, 1,300 people on their on their waiting list, which is about the total number of people from Mississippi uh, who are on the list. Uh, as we stated earlier, a significant portion, uh, over probably 60 to 65 percent of those are needing kidneys. So um, uh, there is a significant need for our fellow Mississippians to receive a, a life-saving organ transplant. Well, tell us now how people can get their name on that registry or what they need to do so that they can become an organ donor. So there are several ways that you can get your name into the donor registry. Um, you can always, you know, as you uh, renew your driver's license, you can uh, indicate that you want to be uh, a donor. And we see a significant uh, number of the people registering. You can also go to uh, msora.org uh, and um Click on uh, putting uh, your name in the registry and then uh, donate lifems.org uh, is another way that you can uh, put your name in the registry. Uh, and then always tell your family this is your wishes. So those are kind of the key areas to, to ensure you uh, are able to help others. Kevin Stump is the president CEO of MORA, which stands for Mississippi Organ Recovery Agency. Kevin, thank you so much. Thank you, Karen. There are currently more than 1,300 Mississippians waiting for a transplant. Nationally, an average of 20 people die each day waiting on an organ. According to Mora, one donor has the power to save up to eight lives, restore the sight of two people, and heal the lives of 75 people. Coming up in our book club, a military veteran and professor emeritus at West Point challenges the myths of the Confederate legacy in Robert E. Lee and me. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Right now, we need connection more than ever. StoryCorps is inviting you to record a conversation with a loved one remotely and archive it at the Library of Congress. Information about this limited virtual experience can be found at StoryCorps.org. StoryCorps is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Ty Siddeley is an Army veteran, having retired as a brigadier general. He taught history at West Point for decades. He's also the author of Robert E. Lee and Me, a book he says challenges the myths and lies of the Confederate legacy. Siddeley grew up in the South and held strongly different beliefs back then. On a scale of 1 to 10, I would have said Lee was an 11. 
And even though I went to church every Sunday, I would have said Jesus was about a five. Because my understanding of Robert E. Lee and the Confederates wasn't just positive, it was reverential. What informed those feelings? Right next to my desk here is a book called Meet Robert E. Lee. And it was written in the late 60s, and it was my favorite chapter book. And it said that Lee was the greatest gentleman that ever lived. And the schools I went to. So, for instance, I was in Alexandria, Virginia. I was bused across town in the 1970s from the all-white school, Douglas MacArthur, to the segregated black school. And what was the name of the segregated black school? Robert E. Lee Elementary. And I was happy to go there because he was my hero. So books, parents, teachers, monuments, everything in my life led me to believe Lee and the Confederates were honorable. They lost, but they lost honorably and with dignity. Over what period of time did you accept that Robert E. Lee and other people or actions of the South were not to be revered? Well, it took me a long time, way too long, as a matter of fact. So, in fact, I was teaching at West Point, and I was living on Lee Road by Lee Gate and Lee Housing Area. And one day I was walking to get some West Point swag for my family. And I walked past Eisenhower Barracks, Pershing Barracks, Grant Barracks, great heroes of American history. And I stopped at the sign that said Lee Barracks. And I stopped and looked at it. And I said, why are there so many things named after Lee? I ran all over campus. There must have been a dozen things named after Lee. And that's what changed me, was going into the archives and discovering the story of why West Point memorialized Lee, someone who fought against this country, and that the facts changed me, the evidence changed me, the history changed me. This book is a combination of history and a memoir. Which dominates? You had to tell your story in order to understand and have people understand why the South is what it is. Well, yes, yeah, a great question. So it's, it is memoir and, and, and history. It's, a, it's in a way a mea culpa and a manifesto. A mea culpa because I believe in these lies which have so hurt our nation, which have created in the South a racial police state. So I'm telling the story of the actual history, but I'm using myself as a means of throughout my, the chronology of my life to say this is why we believed in those things. And we believed in those things because it created a system, particularly in the South, but all over the country, of white political power, white dominance, to enforce control. And that's the story that I want to get across. But using my own life is a really effective means because every part of my life, from growing up in Virginia, high school in Georgia, to, to my school, Washington and Lee, to the Army, to West Point, all of them reinforced this idea that the Confederates were worthy of praise. And it's just not true. You talk about control. Southerners might argue that the reason for the war was because of the control being exerted by the North. Well, it's just not true. The South actually controlled almost all the presidents and the congressmen because of the three-fifths rule in the Constitution that gave more uh, seating to the South for enslavement. But the war happened for one reason and one reason only, and that was the South's undying belief in racial control through slavery and creating a slave society. They seceded, as Mississippi's secession document says, to support and expand slavery. Remember, they didn't just want a slave society. There were more black people in enslaved people in Mississippi than white people. They wanted to expand it into Mexico, Cuba, Puerto Rico. This was an expansion society based on slavery. And when Lincoln was elected, who said, I don't want to expand slavery, it has to stop where it is, rather than accede to a democratic election, they chose secession, rebellion, and insurrection. What are the most widely held beliefs among Southerners about the Confederacy that are just flat out wrong? Well, I think we should remember to say white Southerners because black Southerners don't believe that. And black Southerners make up, uh, what, 25, 30 percent of the South. Um, 
and more than that in Mississippi. But the idea that the first, the Civil War was fought over slavery, full stop, not states' rights. The states' rights have slavery, maybe. Um, second, that the war was won only because the North had, had more men, materiel, and money. That's not true. Part of it was the enslavement that Southerners did. Imagine losing control of that, which they did in Mississippi and other states, and all of the, the free people coming and fighting for the North. Uh, also, there was not enough people in the South because of immigrants didn't come to the South. So that's one another part. Another one was that Grant was a butcher and a, and a drunkard. No, best commander by far in the war. Um, and another one was that, that Lee was, and I, I put this at the top, that Lee was the marble man, the greatest general of the war, the greatest human of the war. we got to remember, one, he lost, and two, he fought for a slave republic, and three, he committed treason by leaving the U.S. Army. Ty Siddeley is a professor emeritus of history at West Point, where he taught for two decades. He served in the U.S. Army for 36 years, retiring as a brigadier general, and is the author of Robert E. Lee and Me, A Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause. Thank you so much for sharing thoughts about your book with us. Oh, here, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure to be on. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.